This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the East Asia channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Traphagen, your host for this podcast, and a professor of anthropology in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I welcome Shen Yang to talk about her recent book, More Than One Child, Memories of an Illegal Daughter, published by Belestier Press in 2021 and translated from the Chinese by Nikki Harmon. Shen Yang, thank you for joining me on the East Asia channel. Hi, John. Thank you for having me on the East Asia channel. I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here. I, I, um, I will just start out by telling our audience that uh, I think this is a tremendously important book. It's a it's a wonderful book, and um, I it's it's interesting. On the one hand, I enjoyed reading it. On the other hand, I found myself very troubled reading it. <laughs> so, um, but what I'd like to do is begin uh, with with a little bit of background, and and we'll get into more detail to this as we move through the interview. But Shen Yang was uh, born in 1986 in Shandong, China, as an excess child with no legal status. She was raised away from her natal family with a different identity because her birth represented a violation of the one-child policy. As becomes clear throughout the book, she is one of millions of children who have been forced to live in the shadows of Chinese society. Despite having a troubled childhood, and she goes into uh, quite a bit of detail about the difficulties of her childhood, but, but also there are some just wonderfully comical anecdotes and moments that kind of help one work through the read. But she, um, you know, had a troubled childhood and then went on to earn a degree in applied English and has since uh, completed a script writing course at the Beijing Film Academy. And she, she's currently living in Shanghai. So, you know, clearly this is a story that needs to be told. I think as soon as one opens the book and begins reading it, you just stop and go, wow, I, you know, coming from uh, the United States, of course, I've known about the one-child policy, and I knew that there were all sorts of problems, but 
to see it close and, and to see it from a personal experience is quite powerful. But I'd like to begin by asking how you came to the decision to actually go ahead and, and write the book. And I would imagine that it was not an easy decision to make. So can you tell us about how you came to this decision? Mm, thank you. Um, mm. Uh, very often when we talk about Chinese family planning policy, the one-child policy, the very first thing that came that comes to people's mind is definitely the only children generation. They have been featured by uh, countless authors and researchers. They were and are always the focus of the society. I mean, in 2016, China scraped its decades-old one-child policy, replacing it with a two-child limit. And on May, May the 31st, 2021 this year, they announced that every couple can have up to three children. Once the news was out, there was a tornado on the internet, <laughs> fierce discussions. Uh, one, of the, one, of the only children, one of the only children wrote something like, we were and are the only children generation in Chinese history. Well, wait a sec, hang on there. <laughs> if you are the only children generation, what about us? What about we millions of excess birth children? Aren't we also the only excess birth children generation in Chinese history? I mean, the fact that we were in the shadows for the past 30 years doesn't mean we want to be or we will be invisible for the rest of our lives. So uh, as an illegal excess birth child I'm myself, uh, I somehow witnessed the history and uh, have, you know, someone who have this personal experience, I want to bear witness uh, and I want to stand up and make our invisible generation's voices heard. And uh, I also want to record the truth on behalf of an enormous invisible community of my peers. And uh, that's the original intention why I want to write about this book. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you, you certainly accomplished that. Uh, the, the book very much... Um, not only you know tells an audience outside of China what what the experience was like, but also you know tells a great deal about how one person coped with that experience and and who has managed to get through life and deal with this. And you discuss this somewhat in the book, um, but I think it would be helpful for listeners if you could talk a little bit about the importance of having children in Chinese culture, and in particular the emphasis on having male offspring and. I'm curious if if you think this is changing, you know, has it changed as a result of the one child policy or the loosening of this? Or do you think that the, you know, the preference for males is something that continues? Mm. Um, Well, uh, in Chinese, we have this word, which means more children, more happiness. (laughs) Of course, that applies to the past. We all know that China used to be an agricultural country. And of course, uh, feudal attitudes linger, a big families, a uh, thriving family, more children means more workers and a stronger family. A single solitary child has no one to help if things go wrong and no one to stand up for them if other villagers cheat them. In the countryside, only a son is considered to belong to the family, able to set up a household and uh, keep the family line going, carry on the family's surname. Uh, daughters will marry out so they don't count. A family with only daughters will be mocked because the line will soon die out. There's another saying goes like this, 嫁出去的女儿泼出去的水, which means a married daughter is like water that has been powered out of the basin. 
she doesn't belong to her parents anymore. <laughs> Judging from this, you can already have a glimpse why they prefer boys to girls. And before answering this question, I would like to share one recent news with you. A young man forced his wife to do an, a, an abortion because the doctor told him that she was pregnant with a girl. Of course, they had some strength with uh, with hospital, so they, they you know, because it's illegal to tell uh, if you are pregnant with a girl or a boy. But if you have some strength, you always get the answer. Anyway, which turned out to be a tragedy when he found out it was actually a boy. Well, they already did the abortion. So people were really shocked that these kind of ridiculous things are still happening nowadays. So they were mocking him on the internet. Something like, are we in 2021? Or we're back to 2000 years ago. I mean, I, I can't guarantee that this is changing everywhere in China. But one thing I'm sure is that after more than 30 years of the one-child policy, people already get used to small fam- family style. More children, more happiness became nothing but a folk memory. Uh, you don't need to have many children to support the family to live a better, wealthy life anymore. And, uh, of course, economic development not only changed the traditional feudal attitudes, but also changed people's mind. Girls are as important as boys. In fact, many of my friends and relatives prefer daughters to sons. And my husband and I also want to have a lovely daughter if we are luckily, lucky enough. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually this is a really important point too, because people you know, from other countries, whenever they're looking at you know, any particular place, there's a tendency at times to think that the way things were somehow never change. And um, you know, the effect of a policy like the one-child policy, of course, has changes on the demographics, but it, it's going to have a profound influence on the culture itself and the way people think about having children. And in, you know, Japan, where, where I've done most of my research, um, the there also is a, you know, history of a preference for male children, but a great deal of that changed after the war for different reasons. And in, in, in this case, partly because the United States um, during the occupation, it imposed a constitution on Japan that changed the way things like inheritance worked and family structure worked. And so, but, you know, over a fairly short period of time, 30 or 40 years, people embody that. They, they take that on and that becomes the normal culture. And uh, it's interesting to hear, you know, the same sort of thing has happened in China for different reasons, but, you know, very different attitude. And of course, I, again, as you say, I think this it doesn't change overnight. So, you know, that previous approach is going to linger for a long time, but, um, but we see a different kind of China. It sounds like today from what it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, so you early in, in the book, um, you talk about the slogans and the direct threats that were made to those who had the more than one child. And I wonder if you could describe some of these to the audience and, and, and talk about, how this influenced people's lives? How did this influence your life? Okay, uh, I think I'm gonna start to raise some of uh, like just three or four slogans so they can have an idea. Yeah, so the first one is, if you have children illegally, we will legally demolish your house. The second one, if you refuse a coil or sterilization, we'll get you. You want to hang yourself, we'll give you a rope. You want to poison yourself, we'll give you po- a portion to drink. The third one, give the snake to poverty, coil yourself in money. And the last one, the first child gets born with a second with tile tubes, with a third and the fourth 
we abort, abort, abort. So what is scary about these slogans is that they were not just empty threats. Things really happened. Uh, you don't pay for the fine, they demolish your house. You don't get your tubes tied up, they, they, they force you, uh, they take you away by force. And, uh, and yet people stubbornly persisted in trying every trick in the book to bring more babies into the world, one after another. They were constantly on the run from the authorities. Some even hid in remote mountains just so they could have a son. Nothing was more important than having a son. Well, compare, compared with the family planning battles in rural areas, enforcing the policy in cities and towns was a simple matter. Government organizations, public institutions, state-owned enterprises, enterprises, right? And uh, the military were ideal for implementing the policies because employees had no land to live off and had to rely on their jobs to support their families. If a couple dared to have a second child, then both husband and wife would be kicked out of their job or uh, downgraded. Take one of my friends as, a, as an example. In order to have him, his father lost his teaching position in a very famous school. And they also got heavily fined. For many years in a row, they were, I, they didn't really live a good life because, you know, the father lost the job. Of course, some did manage uh, without getting the, uh, discovered. They were other people with the right connections, power or money, or those like my parents who mm-hmm. have who, you know, with no money, no power or no connections, but the determination to do whatever it took to have one child after another and hide the evidence. Like like what my, my mom did. Whenever she was pregnant, she would just hide at other relatives' house as long as the authorities didn't sniff any evidence. She was safe. She even managed to go back to work after she gave birth to my youngest sister. So it's really hard to say how much the policy influenced people's lives. It all depended on how every local authority carried it out. Yeah, you 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 brought that out very clearly in the book. I, I remember quite well one passage where you're talking about the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases, local authorities would just, you know, demolish your house, but then others yeah. would leave part of it standing so that at least <laughs> yeah. people had somewhere to yeah. have shelter. And you know, it struck me the the contested nature of what was going on with this. That you know, not not even not every authority was mm-hmm. comfortable with the the level of of, yeah. um, of of response by the government. But you know, they're what can they do? They can't just not do it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it really know. depends. Yeah, and I think I think actually that's one of the things I, I really enjoyed about the book uh, is mm-hmm. that it it brought out the complexity of this situation in China that, you know, it isn't just like, okay, everything's the same everywhere. Yeah. There are lots of individuals mm-hmm. figuring out how to cope with that policy and doing it in different ways. That, yeah. that really comes out in the book very nicely. Thank you. <laughs> I feel you enjoyed so it. I, well, I, I was struck by your description of, and I know I'm going to say this wrong. Um, uh-huh. Hey, Heise. Is that oh, very correct? Good. Very good. Hey, oh, okay. Heise. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, Heiser. Okay. Um, <laughs> or these are these are children who lacked a birth permit and thus were illegals who had no resources and no support. And I'd like to read a brief passage that I found both um, telling and, and really quite chilling. You write, quote, 
Simply by virtue of being born, they broke the law. They were and are an encumbrance to their family and a burden on society. They don't count, end quote. I was just so struck by that. As I, as I read that, I, I just felt, you know, a chill that simply by being born, these children had broken the law. And I think one of the things that struck me is that, you know, you note that the problem continues, that there's been a relaxation of the one-child policy, but it isn't like this problem is gone. And and so could you talk about the situation of Heiser in China as of 2021? Mm, okay. Um, um, when I was working on Modern One Child, I spent a fair amount of time on the web to <clears throat> seek out books, publications, news talking about the present situation of uh, we excess, excess children. But since this topic is a taboo, there were there were barely any info about it. But as far as I know, most of the Heihaizi, excess birth children, remained with the household registration documents. Their parents bought for them or registered on their other relatives' household with a fake name and uh, a fake birthday. Mm, if you don't have strength in the government, it's really difficult to change it into your real name because for the past 30 years, you've been that person for too long. All the record of you is under that household registration, even though that doesn't really affect your daily lives. Uh, our daily lives, deep in our heart, we don't feel that comfortable. Why can't we just like our sisters or brothers or any other normal kids who have their own real identity? Um, so in the process of growing up, all the excess birth children have faced undurable disappointments. These have torn us apart and uh, inflicted wounds that will never heal uh, and which, we, uh, which still cause, cause us pain. This is unfortunate, but it has also allowed us to develop extraordinary abilities in our powers of observation, our memory, our ability to heal ourselves. Suffering has enriched us. Those he has, I know, they all excel at their own fields. The friend I mentioned before, he graduated from UAL, University of Arts London. His graduation project is a documentary about we access first children. And now he works in Beijing in the film industry. Another access child I know, she's the only one who graduated from university among all her sisters and brothers. And she now works in a big company as a general manager. So, of course, there must be other excess children who are still suffering from their childhood trauma. But I want to believe that all of them are out there somewhere in the universe living a peaceful, happy life that they deserve. So then would I be correct in in characterizing one of the changes is that... um, you know, where in the past, um, the these, you know, undocumented or, or illegal um, individuals were, you know, hidden and unable to um, really, you know, talk about or, or express their experiences, that since the loosening of the, the one-child policy, has this, how is it, how has it come about that it has opened up to make it easier for people like yourself to actually publicly talk about their experiences? Is that, you know, has the government basically decided not to be concerned with this or has there been a conscious um, sort of push to have these conversations? I'm just kind of curious how the change unfolded. Uh, well, you mean the change of talking about excess children or? Yeah, it's, 
you know, the mm-hmm. fact that people seem to now be able to much more openly talk about mm-hmm. their experience mm-hmm. of this. Well, uh, I think by telling you my experience of publishing this book in China, you can have an idea. Um, immediately, I got rejected countless times in China because uh, whenever they don't even need to read a story. They, just by hearing the topic, access birth children. No, I'm sorry. This is uh, no one dare to publish this. And yeah, so so even though we can talk or mock this uh, policy, but still uh, they don't allow you to publish anything that you know can spread these kind of thoughts or to tell the young generation what was in the past to teach teach them but so yeah we just i think we just had a tiny bit freedom of talking about this but i think you know uh, as i as i was uh, i think you read it in the book that uh, i had a reconciliation with my uncle in the uh, in in the end right so um, <clears throat> so i was thinking that you know since my uncle he was from the old generation and uh, China is also an, uh, a country with uh, 5,000 years history. So they are quite traditional. The old generation, they knew, like, they, knew they did something wrong. They knew, uh, you know, this is not right. Uh, but they still they stubbornly, uh, you know, believe that uh, I'm the junior, senior. Uh, I'm the old man. <laughs> I, I don't apologize. I knew I did wrong, but... Uh, I don't need to apologize. It's just starving. So I think to this um, sense, the, my uncle and the country is the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, and, and I think it's also true that, that governments never really like to talk about the things that they've done wrong. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And they don't like to have them talked about. And, and yeah. that's... Um, you know, I think that's a, a fairly common occurrence around the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also one time when I was in a taxi, there's this taxi driver. He was quite interesting. He told me something like, you know, uh, this country is so big that I believe that the, the in- uh, initial intention of our leaders are, are good. They, they really want the country to be on the good direction. But the thing is, this is such a big country that one layer after one layer, the different local authorities, when they carry this policy out, somehow the taste changed. So it's quite interesting from his per- perspective, point of view. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, that's. I think that's actually an interesting thing that you see in both China and the United States. The the vast geographical space that the countries cover just means enormous diversity in the way things happen and in the way people think. And um, you know, I think the two countries are actually quite similar in that respect. That they have this kind of tremendous diversity because they're just so big. Um, and policies don't work out the same way in one part of the U.S. that they do in another part of the U.S. And <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, 
we're, we're actually, I mean, we're experiencing this right now. And, you know, the uh-huh. state that I live in has just passed basically a ban on abortions. Ah. They don't allow uh, abortions in America. Well, what, what no. they did in Texas is they, um, they made it illegal for a woman to have an abortion after six weeks. But the problem is many women don't know they're pregnant uh, until after six weeks. So it's a, it's effectively a, a ban on abortion, and um, but then you know other parts of the country don't have that kind of law, and so it's it's you know again very you know similar. You have this very complicated society that's so geographically vast. Um, well, you know, we we talk about you know you you talk a lot about, and we've been talking about the um, the difficulties, and and you, you talk about the abuses and the struggles that you experienced as a child, and. Um, but there's also another interesting, you know, kind of counter theme that runs through the book. And um, I, I found this really quite interesting is that the, the ways in which your experiences growing up as a Heiser forced you to become extremely independent. And I wonder if you could, you know, talk about that, that that theme just keeps arising in the book. You you are clearly reading the stories about your childhood you were a very independent child. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And you talk about, you know, this, this, how you develop this independence. And I, I wonder if you could tell the audience a bit about how this influenced your life mm-hmm. um, and also how it might differentiate you from other Chinese, um, you know, both mm-hmm. those who might have, you know, who were in the similar state of being deemed illegal and, and maybe those who weren't as well. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I'm really interested to hear more about that. <laughs> Thank you. That's a very interesting question. Um, how my independence has influenced my life. Um, <clears throat> when I was young, my aunt used to call me not only damn brat, as you can read in the book, <laughs> but also uh, but also sometimes she called me wild kid, a kid who was always out in a village with other brats. <laughs> to her, every, every child is a brat. <laughs> anyway, so... No one really bothers me, or let's say, let's say it straightforwardly. No one really cares about me. Whatever I do, as long as I don't bring them trouble, I have all the freedom I need. In their traditional opinion, you are an independent individual. You have to take care of yourself. You have to be responsible for your own decisions, whatever you do, even though you are just a kid. Uh, I went to school all by myself from the very first day of my school life. I fought with other kids, especially boys, whenever there were conflicts. I went to see the doctor and got the injection all along. Uh, And if there was something I did not know how to do or did wrong, there was no one to guide me or tell me how to do it right. I'm used to the fact I have to handle everything all by myself. Uh, I have to digest all the negative emotions. And when I was young, of course, I couldn't realize that was actually a good thing. What do I know? I was just a kid who cries for attention and love. And when, it's when I grew up that I realized that being independent ever since when I was young played a very important role in my life. No one interferes with you. You are the master of your own life. Well, even if they want to, it's too late anyway. So I chose to to stay in Shanghai. I chose to marry an Italian. Actually, I fly to Italy all by myself and I got married there all by myself. None of my relatives were there, yeah. And I chose to write for my passion. 
It's a very difficult path, but I managed. And I chose to not have a baby when I'm when I myself was not even mature enough. So I was so stubbornly persisting in my own way of living that my aunt, my dad, and some other annoying relatives who kept complaining that you know I would ah oh, this girl is too pig-headed. Uh, she never listens to anyone's opinion, and uh, and they. And well, whose fault it is? Who made me so stubborn? You, all of you. This is what happens when you let me take care of myself ever since when I was young. So now that I, now that I grew up, you accuse me of not listening to you. <laughs> you want me to change my personality? Well, that's really too late. Well, anyway, those so-called difficulties later in my adult life were really nothing compared to my childhood. So I'm more, I guess I'm more re- independent and more resilient in any circumstances. Mm, I think, yeah, I would be the last one in the universe to commit suicide. Anyway, uh, I guess that's also what differentiates me from other Chinese who are not deemed illegal by the state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you basically, mm-hmm. in a sense, turned it to your advantage. You, you, you figured out how to make use of the background as best you could. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, that theme, it, it comes through very strongly in the book. And I, I think that's again, something that, that is, you know, very interesting because of course the book is, is autobiographical and it's, it's kind of a memoir, but, you know, we learn a lot about you and how, how that experience, you know, the being an excess child, but then also being in a situation where, as you say, nobody paid attention to you, um, really affected, the, the process of growing up and, and how much you had to make things happen for yourself. I think that was the a very powerful theme of the book. And, and I think it comes through as a, you know, a positive theme that's the product of a negative situation. You, you managed to pull something positive out of that. Um, yeah. 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 That's I, also I think, my person. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. I think that's uh, the most important reason that formed my uh, personality also. And also when I was young, whenever I was sick, uh, nobody takes me to the doctor and I was, mm-hmm. you know, um, they always let me recover by myself. And uh, mm-hmm. to, 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 to my surprise, I always recover really mm-hmm. without any medicine, without, uh, you know, mm-hmm. any taking care of from the relatives but so now that i grew up i have a very very strong immune system uh, mm-hmm. i don't get sick <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's uh, my, yeah it's um you know if i if i ever cat uh, caught a cold in like in in a year in many years immediately my husband will get contagious and he he, he will catch this flu or whatever but whenever he got a flu uh, it doesn't affect me at all. <laughs> so he was like, "Oh my God, there's there has to be someone who come to study your gene. This this immune system is is just uh, too much. I mean, so you see, yeah, they leave you alone. They don't care about you, and then you grow up super strong, even physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah." <laughs> And yeah. and mentally as well, that comes through. It's it's, I think you yeah. know both both physical and mental strength for you. I think very much a product of of that background. Um, in in one of the I think much more you know one, one of the really poignant parts of the book, you, you describe being pointed out and teased um, by adults um, who were living in the village where you were, and 
Um, Again, I'd I'd like to read a a passage here. Um, When they yelled, um, hey, Heise, or which literally means black child at you. And you, you said is about this. You said, quote, I thought they were talking about my dark suntan skin. What did I know? I had no idea they were pointing me out because I was illegal, a kid with no official status. I'd managed to hide in my aunt's house thousands of miles away from Shandong. I'd escaped the clutches of the family planning officers, but I couldn't get away from the tittle-tattle and gossip. I thought this was you know, really striking. And then you, you go on to make this very powerful observation. You say, the existence of illegal kids made a mockery of the family planning laws. Women concealed their pregnancies. Um, but the very act of being born was openly to flout the law. The government's reaction when parents refused to pay the excess birth fines was to take it out on us innocent children. If we were not legalized, we were deprived of our citizenship. Although I wasn't in hiding the way other illegals were, I was still terrified by a knock at the door, and since I had no huko or official ID, I grew up without a sense of belonging. Inevitably, the feeling of not being accepted or even of existing took its toll over the years on my physical and mental health. I wonder if you could expand a bit on how being illegal or or what in the U.S. we often describe as undocumented affected your physical and mental health. Could you you talk a bit about that? Okay, um, I was an, actually I was undocumented for only seven years. Then my aunt and my uncle put some strings and bought me the household registration document. For those years being illegal, the period when I was at my grandparents' house, when the family planning officers began to make frequent raids on the village was one of the nightmares in my childhood. Uh, and also I would like to, if you don't mind, I would like to read this short part to the audience. Um, thanks. <laughs> um, at first, the raids only occurred during the day, but later they came by night too. I clearly remembered one night I was sound asleep, cuddled up to Nana, when Granddad rushed in from the big room and picked me up in his arms. He held me under one arm and grabbed the bamboo ladder in the, in the other. Nana held the ladder tight, and he scooted it up to the roof space. After we had curled up safely on the big cross beams. Nana quickly stowed the letter downstairs. It was the middle of winter and the middle of the night, and the knocking on the door was deafening. I cringed in Granddad's arms and clutched his thick padded jacket, staring with terrified eyes at the fainted chinks of light between the floorboards. Nana tottered outside on her bound feet and opened the big wooden gate with trembling hands. The family planning officers rushed in and began to turn the house over. They were turned, they even turned the big bed upside down. I was so frightened, I buried my head in Granddad's jacket and blocked my ears. I couldn't look or listen. I was afraid if they discovered me, I would vanish into the dark night and never see my grandparents again. Well, that happened when I was almost five years old, and uh, that's the very first time in my life I felt so terrified due to my lack of identity. 
Even till now, I can still vividly remember that horrible scene. Uh, two years later, even though my aunt bought me the hukou, uh, the household registration, um, whenever the teachers asked us to take it to school for the registration, I, I dared not to take it out in front of anyone because the birthday was two years older than my actual age and there was no parent's name on my household registration document. I was, I was alf- always afraid that if any of my classmates or teachers discover the truth, they might mock me or look down upon me. Uh, in fact, even until today, I don't like to show my ID card to anyone. It only brings me unpleasant memories. Not to, not to mention that name is really, <laughs> it's really, you know, the, because the characters, um, even though it's different characters, Chinese characters, but the, the sound really sounds like eagle from the mountain. So it's really annoying. That is, I really hated that name with all my guts. Anyway, um, very often I can't help myself questioning about the meaning of my existence. Who am I? Why did I come to this world? Why, why can't I be legal or normal just like all the other kids? Or even like my sisters who are all legally registered under the same household registration document. They are the sisters, three sisters. Or sometimes when I argue with my parents about this or uh, vent to my friends, instead of comforting me, they were like, why can't you just let it go? Why are you, why are you always mentioning this? It's just a piece of paper with some ink. You know who you are. We know who you are. Isn't that enough? Well, they accuse me of having mental problems who is always overthinking, overreacting, or even oversensitive about this topic. But the thing is, they never put themselves into my shoes for once. And they will never understand why I don't have a sense of belonging and a lasting sense of security. Yeah. Yeah, that um, that that um, passage that you read was, for me, one of the you know many very powerful points in the book. I, I read over that a couple of times because I was just, you know, struck about, you know, thinking about this little girl with the knock at the door and her trying to make sense out of all of it. And the incredible level of fear that you, you know, that comes through very well in the writing. You, you feel it as a reader, you really feel the sense of fear that you had as a child being in that situation. It was a very powerful uh, point in the book. Thank you. <laughs> uh, now so, that we can, we, we, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those memories was really scary back then. But now that we talk about it, you just find it ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, those are, those are I think, you know, profound when you're a child. And, and you know, that, that you were traumatized by what happened. Understandably, it was a traumatic experience. And, and you know, as you said, that's something that's never really going to go away. That's going to stay with you. You won't forget that that happened. And, um you know, it, it, and that feeling of belonging, I, I think, um, I think in all societies, there's a strong, you know, need for people to feel as though they belong, that that's part of being human. And I think in some societies, um, the f- belonging to a family, uh, is a very, very powerful thing. Um, you know, I think it, Japan is like this as well. And in, in this, uh, it's interesting. You talk about the, um, the fact that you have a family register, and this is the same in Japan. Uh, and so you're, you're legally placed into a document. If I, if I understand the Chinese case correctly, you're, you're, you're on a document as a member of your family. Is that correct? As a member of my family, the Shen family? That's how, how family registers work in China, that people 
you know, people who are legally part of it are actually on a document that identifies all the members of the family. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm yeah. not there. I was, I was right. on another right. one. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, Japan operates the same way, and and uh-huh. so I think you know for Americans this is different because Americans don't have that. Um, we yeah. just have birth certificates. So <laughs> yeah. um, our birth certificates indicate our name and our parents' name, and that's it. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it doesn't yeah. really identify the whole family as a group. Uh-huh. Talking about a birth certificate, you want to know something ironic, hilarious? I am the only one in my family who had a birth certificate. My dad, somehow, he kept it for me. And uh, all my sisters, they don't have it. Why? Because they, they, they need that to register. Well, I never got registered. So that's why he kept he kept it. And when he showed it to me years ago, I was like, oh, my God. But back then... There was no name because they didn't think about a name yet. So there was no name, just a girl with no name. And uh, you just see uh, 1986, January the 1st, you see the parent's name and the one who, um, and the doctor's name. So it's quite interesting. When I, and I still have it. I kept it. I can send it to you. Um, um, yeah. So it, it came, whenever I saw that, I was like, oh, Mo, this is like, I'm a girl with no name ever since when I was mm. born. <laughs> it's really, yeah. it's really hilarious the whole scene. Yeah, that's that's striking. I, you know, the, the the official documentation has no name on it, and and that kind of, in a way, symbolically captures what you're talking about throughout the whole book. This idea of an entire generation of people who, you know, were in this situation of they were non-entities for, um, you know, in Chinese society and and. You know, I think I actually think there's a lot Americans can learn from your experiences. I, I think the you know the tremendous toll that being undocumented creates for an individual trying to live in any society, and you know, I think it's actually important for Americans in particular because we have a large number of undocumented immigrants, and and a lot of people don't recognize the difficulties that they're going through. And of course, the you know the reasons are different in the U.S., but the experience remains tremendously painful. And I, I'm, you know, would like, I'd like to know, is there anything that you'd like to add to our conversation that we've maybe not already covered that you think would be interesting for our audience? Um, you know, again, it's, it's an international audience, but, um, you know, what, what, what would you like to say that, that maybe we haven't talked about? Mm. Mm, I think uh, just uh, the childhood part, I think childhood plays a very important role uh, in you know, in people's lives. So um, I think um, if, okay, okay, think twice before you decide to have a baby. And once you bring her or him to this world, treat him or her well, educate her well, and give the the kid unconditional love. Uh, And 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 the thing is, when when you grow up, you discover that your parents are not perfect. Everyone is not perfect. They make mistakes because it's the first time they were parents and the first time you were a kid. So, um, yeah, I think it, I think um, if you can uh, forgive them, just forgive them. If you can't, yeah, also don't force yourself. Just move on with your own life. Yeah, I want to, and I want to encourage those kids who have childhood trauma that uh, don't let it haunt you for too long. 
that you know be the master of your own life. And I, I think uh, you must know the the book by Tara Westover, uh, Uneducated, the book, right? Yeah, she mentioned something like in an interview with uh, Oprah Winfrey that uh, I need uh, in. I need someone to change to come back to come back to my life, but if, whether they change or not, it's not something I can control. Uh, so yeah, same goes to my father. Uh, you know, in the book, I don't have a very good father daughter relationship. Um, yeah, and I still don't. You know, because he's too stubborn to change, and I, uh, yeah, I, I need him to change to come back to my life also. But you know, he doesn't change. So goodbye. well yeah i think um you know that's i I think that is that's an important message of the book is that you know ultimately what comes through is the way that you took command of your life and and you know found a way to make things work for yourself despite a very very difficult upbringing and uh and I can, you know, say I, I, I really, I encourage uh, our audience to go get a copy of the book and to read it. Um, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the East Asia channel of the New Books Network. Um, More Than One Child is a, a touching, um, at times it's really quite charming reading about your childhood and <laughs> and and you were kind of a troublemaker. And so that was kind of fun to read about. That. Yeah, um, I was. <laughs> and, and, you know, but it's done the book on the one hand, there's, there's some, you know, wonderfully kind of lighthearted components to it, but the underlying message is a very deep and profound message. And there's just this ongoing, powerful statement of your experiences of childhood as an undocumented person in China that, that, is I think a story that I, I hope lots of people around the world read and and try to understand what that kind of experience is like. Um, I think anyone interested in East Asia or in the challenges people uh, who are treated as you know illegal in any society face as they try to cope with their world will want to read this truly excellent book. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, and um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I, I hope lots of people will we'll take a look at what is truly an excellent book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, right. have a nice, have a good evening. Uh, I'm going to start my Sunday. <laughs> okay.